the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, October 11th. I am Seth Liebson. I'm dispensing with my normal monologue today because as anyone who listened to the show yesterday, I was uh, quite animated by what I was noticing at the colleges and universities uh, over the past couple of days and what looks like will be taking place tomorrow and Friday with uh, student organizations across the country, whether it be at Chapel Hill, whether it be at Harvard, whether it be at Swarthmore, whether it be at ASU or California State University, student organizations uh, taking this moment this week to rally on behalf of Palestinians, indeed with posters and memes showing paragliders as if that is the symbol of the kind of heroism they want to stand up for, salute and venerate in the name of their march for, in their twisted point of view, human rights. I needed to talk to a professor, and the only one I could think of who would have the best read on this is one of the best, Professor Mark Bauerlein, uh, emeritus uh, professor of uh, literature at Emory University. He is a senior editor at First Things and the author of several books on what our young people know and don't know. Most recently, The Dumbest generation grows up from stupefied youth to dangerous adults. Professor Bauerlein, welcome to the show. I was rhetorically asking yesterday, what the hell are we teaching these kids? Well, I think we see here the outcome of a leftist orientation that really goes back to kindergarten. And we're seeing this more and more. Seth, I mean, I I have to say that the whole woke phenomenon has appeared to be, to most people, what, the last four or five years, maybe the last few years, the Obama administration really got it going. But if you've been in higher education, you know that the woke thing has been very powerful in schools of education, in many humanities departments, and certainly in the studies departments, where identity politics really is the general framework Mm -hmm. for understanding the world. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you've got professors who have some knowledge of history and politics and religion and geography, they have enough awareness, actually, uh, not to be out on the front lines, most of them at least, in praise of the Palestinian cause when it grows violent, that the kids don't have that historical depth. They don't know very much, Seth. They, they, they have a thin understanding of the past. And in fact, the past appears to them merely in caricatured form. We get cardboard cutouts of villains and heroes, victims, no, villains and victims mm-hmm. uh, in, in their way of thinking. And what they see is that Israel is, is the, big, the big bully mm-hmm. in, in the region, mm-hmm. and you've got all the victims surrounding them. That's the setup. And it really doesn't go that much deeper than than good guy and bad guy. And remember, these are kids 
the, the schools you listed, these are elite zones. These kids did not grow up in poverty. They did not grow up as victims themselves. Many of them have the kind of liberal guilt that afflicts so much of the elite, the liberal guilt that could look at the summer of 2020 and the riots and the looting and the fires and simply kind of shrug it off as this is the voice of the oppressed at work. These are people who don't live in those neighborhoods. They didn't grow up with violence. They don't know what it is to be caught in a riot or to be caught in a war. So there's an unreality underlying a lot of their celebration or their promotion of the Palestinian cause at, at this time. We, we really have to look. They're not being educated. They're not being informed. They're, they're, they're being given uh, these superficial myths and, and fantasies, and they can act it out, right? They can identify with the victim. That assuages the elite guilt that they suffer, and it probably helps them uh, in, in one way or another get back at their parents. Professor Bauerlein, wonderful. Well done. I remember uh, a book that did a, a, one of the deeper books, but I think it was a deep book. I know it's been subject to criticism about uh, the uses of, of, of teaching children moral tales. I'm thinking of Bruto Benelheim's book, uh, The Uses of Enchantment, that surveys the, the, the world of children's literature. He said for, for, for tales to mean something to children, they had to have a moral basis. And <clears throat> when I'm thinking about our youth today, youth that can celebrate, venerate paragliding ten- terrorists, I am seeing a youth today that would have been marching against the brutality that was inflicted, let's say, on imagery like George Floyd. It's not as if they don't understand violence, but I wonder if and maybe that's a bad example. But these are people who do march for peace. They do have some kind of notion of opposition to violence. But then they see maybe they don't see Mark. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but then they see a movement that decapitates babies' heads off in front of their mothers before they burn the mothers alive, and they march with the people that did that. Is it because their moral perspective and prioritization has been warped? Is it because they haven't been given what Bruno Bettelheim was saying, a firm moral basis and understanding good and evil? They have been given a moral understanding, but as you said, the word is warped. Yeah. And the, the the thing, you know, I, I remember when uh, in the closing in the American mind, yeah. uh, the, the claim was that these kids are being taught to be Nietzschean relativists mm-hmm. and hedonists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in the 1980s. That was Alan Bloom's yeah. uh, complaint. And a lot of conservatives echoed that. And I, I looked around. I was a liberal back then, but I, I looked around at these hard leftists. There were some Marxists, real Marxists. I should say they believe themselves to be real Marxists hanging around the campus. These were people with a very powerful vision of right and wrong. Yeah, they 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 were not uh, power mad, uh, relativistic Machiavellian kind of figures. They were you might call them the useful idiots yeah. who really believed in a moral vision of progress. Now the the problem is. 
and this is where we get to the dark side of shrugging off the violence. Uh, the problem for people who believe in progress, who believe that we can make this world a better place, is they always end up identifying the reason why the world is not better than than it is, why we can't get there mm-hmm. to that wonderful society. And that's because there's some bad people mm-hmm. out there, Seth. Mm-hmm. And, and the answer is simple. You just got to get rid of the bad people. Mm-hmm. This is why so many of these utopian visions slide into bloodshed. Mm -hmm. It is a moral action. The violence is given a sanction because of how much the people have suffered. Mm -hmm. This is the logical uh, extension of, of the progressive outlook. This is why the progressives, they, they profess peace. And they speak about non-discrimination. Well, then we get a guy like like Ibram Kendi and says the only way to overcome this horrible past is we've got to turn it around. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to be active anti-racist. We have to exert another and actually more punitive form of discrimination. That's right. That's right. Uh, And then systemic racism We've got to get real deliberate and intentional about putting certain people down and raising other people up. This is this is where we have to go if you're a progressive. Yeah, it's not about justice, though they put justice in the names of their organizations. It's really not about justice. It's about vengeance. I have to take a quick commercial break, Professor. Do you have time for one more segment? Certainly. We focused on the students. Here's what I'd like to talk about, if I can, with you in the next segment. I'd like to talk about the professoriate. I was asked an interesting question yesterday at a speech I was giving, and I would love to run the answer I gave by you for your analysis of it. Uh, Treat me as your student, if you will, for a moment, uh, Dr. Bauerlein, and maybe respond on the way back. But he said he was an older man, and he said, you know, I grew up with liberal professors, at universities. All my professors were liberal back in the 50s and 60s. But what's changed? Something is different. I said, well, those liberals, you know, they were Arthur Schlesinger's. They were in the Kennedy cabinet. They were Daniel Patrick Moynihan's. They were Henry Steele Commager's. They actually believed in America in 1776. It's a different kind of liberal who's a professor now. And I wonder if you might grade me on that and, and, and give me some feedback on that answer when we come back. Thank you. Professor Mark Bauerlein is our guest. His most recent book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a delight to have with us, a privilege to have Professor Mark Bauerlein, B-A-U-E-R-L-E-I-N. He is the author of several books, most recently The Dumbest generation grows up from stupefied youth to dangerous adults to my question with y'all yesterday about what the hell are they teaching these kids at campuses like ASU such that they rally on behalf of abusers of civilization rather than the victims of it. Mark and I, Professor Bauerlein and I were talking about what the students know. Let's talk about what the teachers now know for a moment, uh, Mark, the professors, what they know and what they say. Uh, liberalism probably always, uh, or at least for many, many years, dominated the academy. But something changed about that liberalism. 
is my thesis. In the 60s and 50s, you would have liberal professors uh, like uh, those that would dominate the John Kennedy cabinet, so to speak. In fact, Alan Bloom, I believe, who you referenced earlier, I think he was a lifelong Democrat, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I believe Leo Strauss was, um, for that matter. They were Democrats. They were liberals who still loved and believed in 1787 and 1787. Liberalism, if if that's the right word for it on the campus, is not that today. Maybe it's leftism. Maybe that's what's changed. Anyway, I'm talking too long. You're the guest. They were were FDR liberals. They were JFK liberals. They were anti-Stalinists. They were anti-communists. They didn't like the left because they understood that the the left uh, was not uh, about First Amendment rights, was not about fully formed free speech and they liked the open marketplace of opinion mm-hmm. yeah they, they they were liberals back the, the professors were back then i, I had a friend eugene genovese oh, yeah. who was right. the uh historian and he was a young stalinist right he was a hardcore left winger he's in graduate school in history at columbia in the 1950s he told me this story and he was having a hard time getting a dissertation topic together. And he said, all my professors were liberal and we thought they were weak uh, politically. I mean, the left, those guys, come on, let's go. Let's get out there and march. They thought the liberals were, were kind of soft on things, but he thought they were good teachers. They were good scholars. And he's having a difficult time getting a dissertation topic. And his professor said to him, listen, choose a group of people who are the farthest from your point of view and study them, write about them, know them. I mean, genuinely investigate them. And so who did Gene go for? He wrote his first book. It became his first book about the slaveholders. It was called the world, the slaveholders made. And he became one of the great historians of the antebellum period of the 20th century. But can you imagine a, uh, a young professor in the humanities, saying, study the conservatives, really, really read their works, get to know who they are. What what were they about? No, no, no. They're into shutdown. Mm -hmm. They're into closing off the avenues of communication, again, because they're not Mm -hmm. in that old liberal point of view uh, attitude. They're not John Stuart Mill who said, you got to have dissenting voices in the room. You're going to get smug and complacent and stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they, they, it's not enough for the liberal, for the leftist faculty now to outnumber conservatives 20 to 1. Mm-hmm. In a department, that one conservative is a perpetual insult, mm-hmm. an irritant. Mm-hmm. We want total, absolute control. That's why... They, they, they get so upset over the tiniest recognition mm-hmm. of conservatism that have, and they pass this along to their students. It is liberal intolerance, not liberal tolerance. It is not inclusion, it's exclusion mm-hmm. under the guise of these soft and fuzzy words, diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion. Look at the actual practices that we have in place, the cancellations that happened. And, you know, uh, remember, the younger professors grew up 
after all this transformation had taken place. They got their degrees in the 90s and the aughts, mm-hmm. after identity politics took hold mm-hmm. of their fields. And I'll tell you one thing. A lot of them, they're scared mm-hmm. of their students. Mm-hmm. They know that a complaint from a student can hijack their lives for months, even if they survive an accusation of racism or sexism. You assigned Huck Finn. It's got the N-word in it. How could you do such a thing? And this becomes actually an investigation. The professor ends up having to apologize. Who wants to go through that trouble? So th- this is, this is the, the chill factor that, that takes place. And what I'm, what I'm stunned by, frankly, Seth, I am stunned at how so many liberals, liberal professors who know better, these are not stupid people, they're not blind, they know how awful a lot of this woke stuff is. Mm-hmm. And Seth, mm-hmm. they never utter a whisper yeah. of protest yeah. about what's going on. They, their, their silence, their timidity, when they used to have such high principles of we must give the lone dissenter room to speak. We must allow the contrary opinion in there because that's what liberalism is all about, individual rights and an open field of discussion. Boy, that's all gone now. You don't hear them standing up anymore for the minority opinion. I imagine that's true of boards of regents and trustees, too. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe it's not just the inability to uh, stand up for what they believe in, but I'm betting, too, it's a cowering towards even compelled speech. I'm sure you have friends in your profession or former profession who don't buy into the pronoun nonsense stuff at the beginning of the year, but feel that they have to say it, kind of like the green grocer in that old Vaclav Havel essay. He has to hang the sign in the window. <laughs> that, there right? we go. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you know, the, the when the administration tells professors these days that you, you better you got to put on your syllabus any trigger warning yeah. if you've got any works on there. Now, the liberal professors that I had. The older liberal professors I had in the 1980s, if the administration told them that they had to do something like yep. that on their syllabi, yeah. It, it, yeah. I, I can't <laughs> say on yeah. the radio yeah. what they yeah. would say in response. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, the right. powers that be, right. you're telling me right. what to do in my right. class, right. you can go straight to. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they, they used to mistrust. Remember when liberals used to mistrust and suspect and resent? the power of the state. Do, do you remember when they remember when they thought the FBI and the CIA were a big problem? I remember boy, when they oh, thought, boy, things, yeah. Things <laughs> I remember when they thought the press was supposed to question the government, not ape. Mark Bauerlein, I have to take the commercial break. You're the best, sir. Thank you so much for joining us top of the hour here today. I want to come back um, soon with you and talk about some of the work I know you are involved in and actually not just critiquing the problem, but solving it. Uh, This will be a down payment. Maybe next week we can get together again, sir. Anytime, Seth. Bless you. Mark Bauerlein, uh, emeritus professor at Emory University, author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com. Great place to reach out to him and learn more about Grand Canyon Planning and what it can do for you. He brings us our culture and economy update. John, how are you this Wednesday? I'm doing well. Thank you, Seth. Good, good, good. Stocks clinch four-day winning streak, huh? Yeah. Yeah, we've seen, it's amazing, right? We see what's happening over uh, in Israel, uh, and yet the markets are doing well. And, you know, the other issue, too, today, we got uh, the producer's price index, which came in stronger than expected. Uh, it was a half a percent uh, increase versus a three-tenths of a percent uh, expected, and yet the markets uh, still responded well to that, even as the Fed minutes came out with the Fed stating, hey, they're going to be, uh, you know, keeping interest rates higher longer uh, until they can see real solid signs of inflation uh, moving lower. So uh, the markets have been quite resilient through this, and um, many are wondering why. You know, it, it just seems like maybe uh, the pullback that we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, people are seeing quite a bit of value still in the market longer term. Okay, uh, that's interesting. I'll let you explore that with us, too. And I wonder, too, if it has anything to do with the story I'm looking at now, uh, Federal Reserve officials being split on raising interest rates and the need there. Is that having any effect, you think, with the divided mind over at the Fed? It could be. Uh, you know, the Fed's uh, still in what they would call a restrictive policy type of a stance, and... Um, uh, that's why I said the minutes of their meeting came out basically stating that uh, they still believe one more hike could be likely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but there are conflicting, you know, just like with any any committee, uh, there are those that feel that maybe there's a need for more rate hikes, and there are those that feel it's time uh, for us to take that pause that many have talked about and see what the overall longer term would be a vision for what they've done up to this point. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and the, and, and the, and the, and the potential for that is probably related to what you're talking about with the CPI, right? With the, with the, with the, with the right. news that came out of the consumer price index. Right. So it's a little higher than expected. So right. inflation is still there. And then tomorrow we've got the consumer price yeah. index, yeah. which, you know, the producer's price index is, the manufacturers, the cost uh, for pro, you know for the uh, articles that manufacturers need to produce their products, uh, and then ultimately, what does that mean to the consumer? And we're going to find out tomorrow what that uh, number is to see if uh, the consumer uh, index is higher than what might have been expected as well. So, are we paying more for things, or maybe are we getting a little uh, alleviation of uh, some of those increases that we've seen over the past year? Which one is more indicative to you of the health of our economy, the producers or the consumers index? Well, the consumer, right, yeah. because that's going to give us, you know, what, you know, the, the pulse of really what the individuals out there are thinking. Okay. And, you know, uh, companies, uh, the producers oftentimes will pass those uh, costs to the consumer unless... Hey, if the consumer stops spending, yeah. the producers, they start dropping their prices. Even if it's, you know, their cost is a little bit more, they'll have to tighten their margins. Yeah. Um, I don't know so, if we've hit that point yet. I'm just not sure no, that we have. No, may, maybe not. But, you know, you've got the, today is, I believe, one of the uh, Amazon has their prime day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're not hearing much about that anymore. And, and there are those out there yeah. thinking, hey, the, deal, the deals aren't as good as they used to be. Yeah, yeah. 
you know? Yeah. So <laughs> kind of goes in line with what you've just said. You know, maybe I, they... Uh, I, I have a friend who judges the economy by how much a Coke is at McDonald's. There are probably worse <laughs> ways to judge the economy, actually. Could be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly right. But But that's right, too. And I suppose it's not just the price of the Coke or the price of anything else, including gasoline. It's also the price they're willing to pay for employees, too. A lot of us right, were astounded at those numbers. Right, right yeah. Yeah, because, you know, if, if things are going up, but wages are going yep. up accordingly, company profits are going up accordingly, then everything is, is kind of moving in an orderly direction. But if you get the numbers that are moving in opposite directions, where uh, prices are going up, wages are going down, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster, right? Yep. So, uh, and, you know, we, we've seen some of that, uh, but we have seen some wage increase as well. So may not be keeping up with inflation, but we certainly have seen some wage increases as well. Uh, thank you, John. I appreciate you that bet. very much. Go ahead, sir. You bet. Again, reach me by going to our website at grandcanyonplanning.com, request an appointment, and Securities and Advisory Services offer the Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Henry and Sipic, and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John. I'm Seth right. Leibson. You bet. We'll be right back. The Crystals, right? Is that the Crystals or is that the remake? Oh, it's the Crystals, all right. Uh, yeah. I was just telling our colleague, Travis, who's in studio with me, a little bit of uh, Sounds of Scorsese, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the wall of sound. Is Travis still here? He, he, he is. Why is yes. he bothering us right now? We have work to do. He's not bothering do. you. He's just bothering me. Why? <laughs> you, are, you and me are tied at the hip. If he's bothering you, he's bothering me. This is NATO Article 5. A war against one, a war against all. I have a question for you both. Okay. I have this new atomic clock. I have a new atomic clock here based on the Naval Observatory on my computer, on this computer here, this fancy computer. Travis can show his face. Have him move a little bit west, east. The clock says 345.15, and then under it it says your clock is off by six one-thousandths of a second. Now, if it's smart enough to know that it can be off by six one-thousandths of a second, point oh oh six, why doesn't it just fix itself? Exactly. Why doesn't it? What am I missing here? Don't tell me I'm off by six one. Do something about it. As I have said every time our uh, in-studio clock is has broken, there's probably something wrong at the Naval Observatory. Yeah. Well, you know who lives there. Yes, and I know who's in charge. Yeah, yes. I want to get to that. Remind me if I don't get a chance to okay. get to that. Okay. New York Times did a profile on her. Ooh, boy, it's not good. Ooh, boy, it's not good. All right, let's go to Bob and Payson. Hi, Bob. Hey, Seth. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing time. fine. How are you? I can't complain. As I usually say, I could be in Ukraine, but now I don't want to be in Palestine either. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> hey, uh, the, the new speaker, when he's elected here, hopefully very shortly, I think his first order of business says should be to appoint a complete study of Palestine, known in biblical times, I believe is Judea, I think it was. He should nominate folks from his Congress that are familiar with that land, and sympathize his land, and send the entire squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ariana Presley of Massachusetts, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Hamel Bowen of New York, Cory Bush of Missouri, Craig Cesar of Texas, and Summer Lee of Pennsylvania. Did we get Jamal Bauman in there? 
I did. Yeah, you say good. Jamal, I said Hamal. I'm oh, sorry. okay. No, I, I did. that's fine. I, I, I just, it was such a long list. You know, it's interesting it's such a long list. People think it's this small thing. That's a lot. That's a lot well, of socialists four, in Congress. That's a you, lot of Marxist you, socialists in Congress. Seth used to be four, now there are eight. Used the to list. be zero. Used to be zero. Well, exactly. When you and I were growing up, it was zero. And there are a hundred more throughout the state legislatures of this country. And the interesting thing about this, I was uh, talking about it in my monologue yesterday, Bob. Um, I was talking about this yesterday in my monologue, that if any of them who have such um, uh, respectful support for the sovereignty of uh, and the statehood of West Bank and Gaza, what they call Palestine, if any of them were to go there, and preach there what they preach here with regard to their domestic agenda, whether it were to be on uh, alternative lifestyles, whether it would be on LGBTQ rights, whether it would be on, uh, on, 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 on abortion rights, they'd be arrested. They would be arrested. These are the least liberal societies in the country. They could be put in jail. They could be put to death. Well, I agree. It's treasonous at the best. But when they complete their task and they will report back to the Congress and the American people on what they have found, and we know this is very dangerous and we don't want to jeopardize, we want to protect our congressmen and women. So we're going to provide them with the latest GPS, global positioning tracking devices for their protection. These devices will all have the latest correct laser codes that will be provided to the Israeli AH-64 longbow attack helicopters that will be inserted into the fire control systems of the Hellfire missiles. This, as we know, is all for their protection and their worthless, traitorous lives. Yeah, I think we're making a different point. I'm not quite tracking what you're saying. I guess the point I'm saying is I'm making a slightly different point, which is, you know, it would be nice if uh, a, a serious journalist were to ask them the serious question that I'm propounding to them, which is, what is it about those societies you believe should add to the community of nations by their statehood when in the United States you represent a point of view that is totally anathematized in those societies, whether it's about religious pluralism, whether it's about uh, freedom of protest, whether it is about uh, uh, women's rights, whether it is about LGBTQ rights, whether it is about abortion. Uh, What is it about those societies and the political organization of them, whether it is about elections? When is the last time the uh, the four year term the four year term uh, President Mahmoud Abbas on the West Bank has submitted himself to an election. I believe it's been about eighteen years. And why is that, by the way? Why is that that he won't submit himself and his Fatah party to elections? Because Fatah, though it believes in the entirety of the state of Israel as their occupied territory, as the territory they own, is not quite anything less than moderate when it comes to Hamas. They know that Hamas, which governs the the Gaza Strip, or what used to be called the Gaza Strip, what's now called Gaza, they know that Hamas would unseat Fatah. It's merely about power structure. You see, the problem with those regions, West Bank, Judea, Samaria, or Gaza, the problem with those regions is they're not and will never be asked 
the question of how they should organize their government. They will never be asked that. That is the liberal question in nation-state building. They only ask the question of the tyrant, which is not how government will be organized, but who governs. Who governs? And to this squad, that answer is irrelevant so long as the answer is not pluralistic democratic state of Israel. And this is the greatest curiosity to me of our times. It's the greatest curiosity of, uh, of our times to me, precisely because this is what liberalism used to stand for and ask. How will society, how will your government, how will your state be governed? Not who will govern it. The who question is all they care about, and it's the only question tyrannies from time immemorial ever asked and cared about. These are tyrannies of Stygian darkness that those that dare call themselves progressives want to venerate, respect, and elevate. And that's how you lose civil society. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. If you're concerned about uh, stock market volatility, possible recession, inflation, you might uh, want to check out our friends at Y-Refi. They have an investment in a portfolio, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed, and it's a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return. You'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this investment, the secure and collateralized portfolio being offered up by Y-Refi, and they are a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. I was mentioning the New York Times profile of Kamala Harris. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny as heck. It's titled In Search of Kamala Harris. And uh, Powerline, Steve Hayward at Powerline has the... Uh, has the um, synopsis of it. it. Boy, is it rich. Try this. Quote from the New York Times, White House senior advisors have exhorted Democrats to stop criticizing Harris to the press on the record or off, telling them that, that it's harmful to the overall ticket. Let me read that to you again. White House senior advisors have exhorted Democrats to stop criticizing Harris to the press on the record or off. Close quote, because, well, because it's harmful to the ticket. Close quote. Hayward has a good point. Has the White House ever had to tell its own party members to lay off of a vice president? Dan Quayle and Spiro Agnew both got tons of bad press and low poll numbers, but I don't recall they ever received intra-party criticism as Harris has. Oh, the story goes on and it's quite rich. Um, it... Um, yeah, this is this is good. In um, Harris craved the approval of the party's left wing when she came to Congress, particularly the class of liberal college educated women who had grown more interested in Elizabeth Warren's unabashed progressivism. Oh, my gosh. Many of her rhetor rhetorical quirks extend beyond policy. The unbridled laugh has its own name now. Did you know this? L-G-B-O-L. -L. I just burst out laughing. It's a meme of 
of, of, of Kamala Harris's and about her, her passion for Venn diagrams. She mentions them so much that the GOP has made a one-minute compilation video. And even her dance moves have become punchlines, shrinkling Kamala Harris, the vice president, to Kamala Harris, the meme. That's not me. That's not Steve Hayward. That's the New York Times that wrote all that. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.